Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hello, and welcome to the Publicly Challenged Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Oswald, and I hope you join me on my quest for knowledge to become a better public land hunter, angler, and forager. Stick with this, and who knows, maybe we will learn something together. All right, real quick before we get started on the show, I'm just going to talk about Treeline Academy. You've heard me say it. I can't even tell you how many times. Um, Mark Livesey is treelineacademy.net. That's treelineacademy.net. Sign up. Use the promo code PC2020. Save yourself 20 bucks. Can't say it enough. It's awesome. Amazing. Most comprehensive e-scouting course out there. Check it out for yourself. Sign up. Use promo code PC2020. And now let's get to the show. All right, so I'm sitting here, and I am talking to Nate Sellers of Average Jack Archery. And Nate, I got all kinds of questions for you. I don't know if your season started yet, but mine is tomorrow. So uh, you always got that panic going on, and I kind of got it right now. I'm like, man, am I good enough? Am I dialed in? What should I be doing? So I'm going to let you introduce yourself. Nate, tell us a little bit about yourself and who you are. Well, first, buddy, thanks for uh, having me on. I appreciate it. It's it's going to be a blast. At least I, if anything's an indication of uh, our communication off air, this is going to be this is going to be food <laughs> of fun. Uh, but uh, thanks for having me on. But folks, uh, my name is Nate Sellers. I'm from Average Jack Archery on YouTube, and you can find me on all the social media platforms. But I'm uh, just your run of the mill middle school English school, uh, English teacher from Central Pennsylvania. Um, don't do anything fancy or fun. I just, uh, really enjoy helping people, of course, in the classroom. And that just ended up translating to the, the sport of archery and the world of archery hunting back in 2015, when I started the channel, my wife, we were just, uh, recently married, just had our first kid. And I was starting to do a lot more tinkering and stuff around the house. And my wife was like, why don't you put some of this stuff on YouTube and see if someone would, would want to watch it, have interest in it. And 
Um, so I decided to make a couple videos and boy, is it bad. I've had people recently message me, I've followed you since the beginning and man, you've come a long way and it has come <laughs> a long way. It has come a long way. And, uh, you know, it's, it's really cool, but I still have not lost the absolute passion I started with back in 2015 of just helping people out in sport of archery and archery hunting. It's been an absolute blast. And I look forward to, I mean, we just cracked 25,000 subscribers. I think we're just now over 26. I mean, that's just ridiculous to me. And uh, <laughs> I'm just looking forward to where it's going to continue to go. So that's pretty cool, man. That's awesome. I always, I'm not like an avid YouTube watcher, but when I do, I go through spurts to where I'll watch it for like a month straight and just consume as much content as I possibly can. And I got to say, I've watched a lot of yours. So, um, I got some questions for you and it's going to be interesting. So um, I'm, let's kind of get a little background on you though. How long have you been uh, in the archery world? Were you an archer first or were you kind of like you picked up a bow and started hunting right off the bat? So my granddad, so my parents, I'm the oldest of five kids and none of my siblings, younger siblings hunt and neither one of my parents hunt. Uh, my mom uh, is from this rural area of PA that I live in right now. My dad is actually from San Antonio, Texas. Uh, and so he grew up in the city of San Antonio, did not hunt anything like that. And, uh, when my mom and him met here at Penn state university, I eventually got married and whatnot. Um, I was the only kid who somehow, I don't know how I picked up the passion for the outdoors, fishing, hunting, trapping. I mean, everything amused me about the outdoors. And so she, my mom, uh, got me connected with her, uh, biological father and he was a avid archer. Uh, competitive archer back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, you know, shot when compounds were shot with fingers, uh, was a state and, and a national archery winner for Hoyt at the time back in those days. And um, so he got me started. Uh, he didn't teach me much. My grandfather, uh, like myself, uh, was a middle school teacher, very rough. Uh, you know, you're either going to go in the, I'm going to throw you in the water, you're either going to sink, or you're going to swim. Uh, so there wasn't, there wasn't a whole lot of handholding. You know, all the archery stuff that I know currently I was self-taught. He taught me how to shoot a bow um, and I taught myself how to work on them and how to, you know, all the things with arrows and tuning and all that stuff. And um, but he got me into the passion of archery and, and bow hunting, just watching that arrow fly. You know, as Ted Nugent says, the mystical flight of the arrow. And it blew my mind. I just loved watching it as a kid. And uh, so I, I started shooting a bow. Uh, in Pennsylvania at the time, now the rules have changed, but at the time you couldn't hunt in Pennsylvania until you were 12. And so I started shooting a bow and bow hunting when I was legally allowed to do so, which was 12 years old. So this is my 17th year of bow hunting. Uh, and so that first year in archery season, I wasn't able to pull enough poundage. We have a 35 pound uh, draw weight, um, but I was able to, you know, legally I could have hunted. I shot my bow, but it wasn't enough. And so then when I turned 13 was when I really fully actually started getting into bow hunting because I could pull enough boundage and I've never missed an archery season since. Uh, so it's, I, over the years, I've gotten more and more into just even taking the bow out during firearm season because that's how much I enjoy the sport. And recently I've gotten back into the competitive shooting side, uh, both 3d and target. And it's just been a hoot and a holler just to get back to my roots again. It really is. I think they just changed our law this year in Illinois to where during shotgun season on private ground, you can hunt with your bow. But before oh, so that, they don't have like a, a lesser weapon clause. 
I, until just recently, I don't think they have. I just saw somebody uh, post something about it on social media, and I had never seen that before. So it must be something that just came out like this year. So that's pretty cool, though. Yeah. Yeah, that should happen. I think I. That's the cool. I will say that's the cool thing about PA. And PA, you can use the bow is considered the least or the lesser weapon. So you can take a bow out in muzzleloader season. You could take a bow out in gun season. And that's quite frankly, I think, the way it should be. Yeah, we we were always able to do it during muzzleloader season, as long as you wore your orange. But you didn't uh, you didn't uh, have to do it, or you couldn't do it during shotgun season. But I think that has just changed, so that's kind of cool. Um, now I can actually bow hunt. Uh, well, I think you actually have to use a shotgun tag, but you can use a lesser weapon. So it's not okay. like you could use your archery tags and and bow hunt during shotgun season. But I see yeah. in your um in your area that you're in there. I have to ask you this. I'm gonna turn the question on you. Yeah. Does it benefit you in terms of like? Because I know here in PA, our big thing is. For me, hunting with a bow, it drastically opens up the areas that I can hunt in suburban areas during firearm season where these deer get pushed because our safety zones go from 150 yards with a firearm to 50 yards with a bow. So these areas that might be these little pockets of suburban where these deer get pushed off of public, I can hunt with a bow, but I can't with a rifle. Would that benefit you in your area? Um, you know, I think no. Because okay. the places that I hunt, I, I primarily hunt public. So um, the the public would still be closed to archery during shotgun oh, season. Oh, that's true. So, yeah. But I, other than that, yeah, it probably would. Especially if, um, you know, you find a good piece of private or something that's butted up to something, you know, maybe that would benefit you in some way. But um, other than that, no. Um, but so... You kind of mentioned something when you're doing your little introduction of yourself, and it made me think about it. And you said you just kind of learned to work on it. And that's, I used to work on my own archery equipment as well. But as time progressed, I don't know, there's this innate fear in me now, I think, to work on my own stuff. And I don't know if it's because I'm actually paying for it now as an adult, and it's much far more expensive than it was in the past. I don't know if that's the reason why I just don't trust myself or maybe it's just because it's all in my head and it's technical stuff that it really isn't that technical anymore. What do you think about that? I know I, I actually get messages from folks who are like, yeah, I have a buddy as a bow press, but I still take it to my shop to have like the work done. And I always kind of like give them the one eye squint, like, why does your buddy have a bow press? Like that's the whole point of a bow press is to be able to do your own work. But there seems to be a particular, cause Bows of today, you know, you look at bows like Prime and Matthews, they have five or seven sets of string and cables on them, all the yokes and, 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 and this technology and this shim and this, you know, Elite's got the set and Bowtech, you can shim it on the axle. There's a lot of weird stuff that goes on with bows nowadays that you're, you know, I put in air quotes, supposed to know how to do because that's the way the manufacturer designs it. And there's a lot of people who are like, I have no idea. Like people in particularly those that come from crossbows or come from firearms, they just want to point and shoot, right? They don't want to have to, they want to sight in the scope or move the iron sights. They don't want to have to deal with the timing of the cams. You know, is my peep going to twist? They don't want to deal with that. And I don't blame them. I don't blame them. For me, it's, it's, uh, um, I like it when my bow does something weird because I get to fix it. You know, (laughs) it's like like a guy who's never done working on his car. You know, he's always adding something new to this car. He never drives. (laughs) That's what it's like for me. Like I'm always doing something 
like like this you know my bow sitting right here on the rack above me and i just put new string cables on it just for fun just to have something to do the other day to break in the set of string cables it's it was two weeks before the season opened and i just completely just broke the bow down (laughs) and redid everything just because i could like that's the kind of person i am but no i think you know like you said the, the the actual money is on the line. You know, these bows aren't cheap in a lot of ways. Um, and we are these type of people that once something works and it's set and it's good, we don't want to touch it. You know, we don't want to ruin the method. We don't want to, you know, once you, once you shoot in a rifle, you don't go immediately clean the bore out because you know, as soon as you do it, it's not going to possibly impact the same way. Same thing's true with the bow. I think it's perfectly warranted what you're saying. So, I mean, like I used to put in my own peeps. I used to put my own knocking points. Back then we used the knocking points instead of the D loop and things like that. I mean, it was old school, but I used to do all that. I had the little arrow tool. You put it in the bow press, stick it in there and put your peep in and tie it in and all that. And I mean, even on my longbow, I would, I would do my own serving and everything. And now it's like, I just, I don't, I don't do it. But like, so now it kind of brings me to the question because there's so many times where you could be out in the field and something simple could break something like a D loop. And it's something I should probably know. Right. I mean, (laughs) it is, it's something that like, and that's guys will like, I don't know, like we, the, the, the amount of DIY just totally broken stuff that comes into the shop that I work at. It's not my shop. I want to get this very clear for anybody who actually listens to this or anything else that I do. I don't own a shop. Stop asking me if I own a shop. I don't own a shop. I work at a shop <laughs> and I help out at a shop uh, when I'm not in school. Um, but the, like the, the amount of stuff there that is just DIY, just broken, should never have happened. And there's no excuse, right? And like in today's day and age, like I remember when I was a kid growing up, like I was reading every field and stream magazine. I could get my grubby little paws on or outdoor life or whatever. Like I went through, I went to my local library and my mom's like, okay, honey, go pick out a book to read. And I go right to the magazine rack and I'd rip through all the outdoor life and field and stream magazines <laughs> to find any archery article that I could to learn how to do this or how to tie this or how to do this. And nowadays you have Google and YouTube at your fingertips 24 seven. There's no excuse to not type into Google how to tie a D loop. Right. Okay. You can note, you can know, and I'm not, I'm not, saying, I'm not, saying, I'm not telling you that it doesn't still scare the crap out of you, but at least the resource is there and you can practice, you know, you can take a piece of string, tie it between, you know, heck, you could put two nails in a door jam and stretch a piece of string and tie D loop after D loop after D loop. And you could at least get the practice in. And that's something that I did as a kid trying to figure out how to do stuff. And now thankfully the resource is there, not just me, but a whole bunch of other people in the archery of the YouTube scene that are just so informative and so willing to help people. I think that's a, people should take advantage of that resource and so kind of quell their. Let's kind of break that down a little bit then. So say you want to tie a D loop, what would you order for string? And then you would carry obviously a knife and probably a lighter with you in the field as well. Right? Right. Yeah. So the knife, you should have a knife in the field. And just throw a lighter in the glove box of your vehicle. You know, you, I would imagine you're not going to do it on stand. If you're doing it on stand, <laughs> you, you, you're, you're just gutsy. But we're all carrying a multi-tool, right? So, like, and this is something true. I even have it. Uh, I'll, I'll show you uh, later. But I've taken a pair of my, I, I use Gerber multi-tools. That's the thing I use. And I actually have taken a pair and I have ground out 
on the backside of the pliers. So not where the pliers close on each other, but on the backside, I've actually grow, ground out grooves so I can stick it into a D-loop between the D-loop and the string and open the pliers and it expands the D-loop and cinches down the knot. So I have this pair of uh, pliers. They actually make it by Easton. Easton actually makes this specific set looks exactly like this. I just DIY'd my own, DIY'd my own. But I take that multi-tool in the field everywhere I go. And so it's always on my bell or it's always in my pack. So if I needed the D-loop change, which is very, 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 very rare, I could do it. But I'd have the knife, I'd have the pliers, whatever. But then if you go on to, um, there's only two major, major manufacturers of material, for example, of string material. And one of them is BCY. They make like 90 plus percent. Go on to BCY's website and put in string loop material. And they'll give you four options. They'll give you a really thin, floppy one and a really thick, stiff one. And personally, I like the thicker, stiffer stuff. And that I would just order a spool of that. They come in like 100-foot rolls. You can make D-loops for the next 40 years. Perfect. <laughs> for you and all your buddies. And, <laughs> uh, and, you'd be, and, you'd be good, and you'd be good in that way. And so, yeah, I mean, as daunting as it seems to do a lot of this stuff, it's not too terrible if you break it down to small baby steps and small, simple tools. So like one of my things right now that I'm going through is I have my sight on my bow and I, and I have, I have an HHA optimizer single pin sitting there brand new in the box that I don't want to put on yet. Cause I'm scared. I'm going to take my other side off my bow. I'm not going to be dialed. I'm not going to have the time to sight it in and adjust it and figure out my sight tape. What would you do? I'm guessing you would take it off and just throw that other side on it. Wouldn't you? I would have done that a week ago, and I <laughs> like I I'm not kidding. Like when I say I deliberately break, but your your season's tomorrow. Yeah. So your your season <laughs> over tomorrow. Mine's this weekend, so I still got a few days yet. Um, but I've been licking my chops since since I killed my turkey back in May. So I like because that was my last season, was turkey season. So I didn't get a turkey season. They shut mine yeah. down. So <laughs> yeah. did they really just straight yeah, up shut it down? Yeah. Oh, that's brutal. That's yeah. just terrible. It's terrible. So. Go ahead, brag and boast that you got your turkey, and I. Well, didn't. I'll tell you what I've spent. I've spent a lot more. I've spent a lot more years walking around the woods yelling at turkeys than I've ever spent shooting them. So, I think this is only the third or fourth bird I've ever shot since I started chasing turkeys back when I was twelve years old. So, you know, take that. You know, my success rate's like one every four or five years. So. See, I've yeah. never, I've never shot a spring turkey with a bow, and that was. My, my whole goal and I was like yeah I'm gonna do it found some nice nice gobblers coming down off the roost I'm like this is perfect this is where I'm gonna go had my setup didn't get to but I have a turkey tag in my pocket for this deer archery season fall turkey tag so I'm hoping at least I can get a little bit of redemption there on it you know <laughs> but we'll see I don't know <laughs> I've never taken a turkey with a bow I don't I don't think I'll ever actually try it because I have such a, I have such my tactics for turkey hunting are straight up run and gun. Like I don't sit like our, our public lands here in PA. If you're chasing a turkey, there's so many turkey hunters that if you're on a field chasing a turkey, there's like 14 other hunters that are also sitting that field trying to get that turkey <laughs> to come to them. And so you're just, you're just better off chasing them in the timber with a shotgun. Um, but shooting with the bow, I mean, that would be, That'd be pretty righteous for somebody in Pennsylvania to do. So all the other, like I've, I've shot two turkeys in the fall and they've been with a bow. One of them I even got with my long bow. So 
Oh, yeah. from a tree or were you on the ground? No, on the ground, stocked up on it. No kidding. <laughs> yeah. Wow. It was fun. <laughs> Meet your maker. No, I, I don't think, I don't think I could ever do it. It would be, it would take, I'm not a very stealthy person. Like that is not, I'm a bull in a China shop when it comes to the woods. Like that's like, I like watching like Zach Farenbaugh from the hunting public and what he's doing. I'm sitting there going like, nah, I could never do that. Like never in a million years. Cause I make so much noise just walking to like where I'm going to sit in a tree. You need so, to be an elk hunter then. Yeah, apparently. But I look then, like a giraffe out there. No, like then you six, just. You make the noise. It's perfect. Yeah, they think true. you're a tree. <laughs> I'll just start rubbing my arms up against stuff. You just dress like an aspen. You'll be good. <laughs> Instead of a quaking aspen, it's a walking aspen. <laughs> but yeah, no. So I even. Good thing to know is if you body shot a turkey and it's laying there, especially with the Wenzel Woodsman, they're sharp. And when you go to get your arrow, chances are that turkey is going to spur at you. Mm. And I know that because I jumped backwards as it spurred at me. And I drugged that Wenzel Woodsman across my bibs. And I put a hole in my bibs. And I thought to myself, man, my leg feels really warm. And then it dawned on me and I looked down and I stuck my hand in the hole that was in my bibs and pulled the finger out and it was bright red. <laughs> And so I had to hurry up and take care of that turkey and then go to the hospital and get some stitches. (laughs) Right across the quad or catch you on the shin? Right on the kneecap. Oh, my. Ah, (laughs) jeez. So lesson learned there. Keep your arrow in a safe position and realize that that turkey, if you body shot it, it's probably going to spur at you. Yeah, and that woodsman, are you shooting like the OG, so like the three-inch long model? The OG, yeah, the four to one ratio or the three oh, to one ratio. Yeah. I have it. Yep. Yeah. Super sharp though. Yeah, they're oh, super yeah. sharp. Glue on oh, tips, yeah. glue on tips, wood shaft, port orford cedar, tapered Ford it myself, Orford. hand cut the fletching, you know. But okay. those days are gone. Oh. I don't have time to shoot that thing anymore, unfortunately. I just don't I feel will, comfortable. I will say, speaking of like the arrow building and the, and the turkey. I have a dream of mine. So like everybody talks <laughs> about the triple crown, right? You should turkey and a bear and a whitetail on the same year, right? Or whatever that thing is called. I forget. My triple crown to me, I'm a horrible fly fisherman and I'm a terrible trad archer. But my personal, my personal thing is I kill a turkey with any weapon. does not matter. I take the feathers off of the, off the wing of the turkey. I fletch an arrow. I kill a deer and I use the, the hair of the deer to tie a fly to catch a trout, catch a native trout. That's my perfect. That's my triple thing. But I have yet to get back into the trout archery. I've done step one. I got to get step two done, which is get <laughs> back into trout archery and make my own feather fledged arrows because I'm not going to shoot it with a compound. That would just be cheating. <laughs> so that's my thing. And then, and then. I, me, me working a fly rod, I don't know. It looks terrible. Like it's so bad. Like all these elegant, you know, things, you know, you watch all these guys fly fish and catch this beautiful trout. I look like, a, I look like my elbow is broken trying to, sh- you know, move. Well, so I things. just recently fly fished for the first time this summer. I went out with uh, a guy, Austin Aducci, which I actually did a podcast with. And then uh, we went out and got to try it after I, I talked to him and got some advice on it. And, and you know how to do it he's like come on out we'll we'll go and we'll do it and i did and the whole time he's telling me 
we're not Eskimos. We live in houses. We have flat ceilings. And then he's like, so don't be trying. Paint a ceiling, flat ceiling. Don't paint an igloo. And the whole time I'm over there just iglooing it up. <laughs> and I told him, I said, you know, you know how I prep for this, right? And he goes, no, what do you mean? And he goes, you, I go, I watched a movie. He goes, what movie did you watch? I go, a river runs through it. I was going to say, if you say river runs through it. <laughs> he just shook freak, his head and laughed at me. Freaking Brad Pitt with a freaking fly rod. <laughs> and uh, I go, so if I'm shadow casting over here, don't, don't mind me. I'm just. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, it, <laughs> he just shook his head and laughed. He's kind of a serious guy. So when you, yeah. it was funny. <laughs> He's not taking the crap. <laughs> but so um let's kind of talk about some like tuning things and stuff like that what if if somebody wanted to start tuning their own bow obviously there's tons of resources especially on your channel right that they can go to but what would be some of the tooling that they would need in terms of like the actual best tools that they would need to actually physically work on the bow yes yeah yeah so i mean the number one thing is just having yourself a reliable set of Allen keys and Torx wrenches. You're going to find that Torx wrenches are actually becoming more like Torx head, the six, the star head, or if you want to call them, become more and more popular. The number of this again goes back to what we say in the shop. The number of guys that just you're like, ah, it's a Torx. I bet I can find an Allen key that'll fit that. And oh, they, no. just round, they round that sucker out in the first six seconds of trying. And then they bring it to the shop and they're like, well, I tried it. And then we're like, well, yeah, well, now we're going to have to drill it out type thing. So make sure you just have a quality set of that sort of stuff. That's like, that's probably number one. And then I strongly recommend a set of, um, or a, or a, a, a bow square, a T square or an L square. You'll see some guys they'll do, um, like Sean McVeigh from Sean's Outdoor Adventures does a lot of it. He'll do like the bubble levels and we'll do that in the shop too, actually. And I actually yell at the shop owner why we don't run the T square because the bubble levels take forever, but you got to put a bow in a vice. You got to level the strings with so perfectly up and down and you stick an arrow on there and then it levels off the arrow. It's really time consuming where you can just take a T square or an L square. It clips right onto the string, makes the exact same 90 degree angle. And you can make that 90 degree angle upside down, sideways, backwards, doesn't matter. It's always going to be there. So that's a great, that T-square, L-square, I use the Easton T-square, is a great way to find center shot and a great way to find rest height and your D-loop location, you know, in the drop of a hat. So that and a pair of Allen keys, and you're already 50% better than most of the guys out there. Um, when you start getting into... Um, other tools, I find like little crafting tools actually make really good, like really tiny needle nose pliers, raid your wife's closet. If she's got this kind of stuff <laughs> <laughs> or if you're, or if you're like me, actually I'll be truth be told the best place to buy archery tools is Harbor freight. And I don't know if they're like out in the Midwest. Do you guys have Harbor freights out in the Midwest? Oh, we do. Okay. We do. They, they sell the little, the Pittsburgh. They're right over here. They're these little tiny you know, wire cutters and needle nose, and they are perfect for all things working on bows. And they're like a dollar. Uh, and so I'll pick up a couple of pairs of those, and they're great. That um, One of the biggest problems people have with cutting off D-loops is they'll use a knife, and they'll be cutting into the D-loop knot, and all of a sudden the D-loop knot will give way, and then they'll take their knife and run it through four strands of their bowstring. Ouch. It's, it's terrible. <laughs> well, if you take that pair of like little teeny wire cutters, you clip off the part of the knot that wraps over itself and the whole D-loop falls apart in your hand. You never once touch the string. So I carry around those around the shop. And if some guy comes in and needs a new D-loop or I need to put string cables on and, he, and I need to change a D-loop placement or something, 
clip, clip, it's done. And I never once had to take a knife out and, you know, saw away, you know, just to make sure I didn't cut the, cut the string. So again, you get that you're now already 60, 75% better than most people. Um, the, the Rolls Royce, of course, of, of archery equipment is the bow press. It really, I mean, that, that changes the game from, you go from being very dependent on a bow shop to, you can do just literally anything you want. Um, and, you know, I tell some people, you know, if you want to, if you're in a community of, of guys locally that are all bow hunters and want to get serious, you can go in together. I, you know, I bought the, the um, Last Chance Archer Easy Green for a little under 400 bucks. You know, if you have four buddies, it's 100 bucks. You know, just don't take your wife out to that fancy dinner once or twice. <laughs> and, <laughs> and you'll have a bow press that you all can share. You know, um, for me, I have work, work on so many bows, work on so many bows for people. I just bought it outright. But, you can get something cheaper like the Bowmaster Press uh, or the Cinem Press. You know, those run less than 100 bucks, um, And those will do everything that the average dude at home needs. You know, put your string cables in time. Put your peep in right so you're not smashing a butter knife in between the strands of your, of your string. You're doing it correctly. Just simple stuff like that. So I, it doesn't take a whole lot. The When you start getting more tools like that, it's not the tool itself as much as it is the knowledge to work with it correctly. But again, going back, the Allen keys, the Torx head, that T-square, L-square, the cheap little tools from Harbor Freight, little wire cutters, Nino knows that sort of stuff. That's a really good place to start. So um, what about like an arrow roller or something like that, like the V-block type roller? You can get like the like an arrow spinner to yep. check. Yeah, to check like the straightness. So I use the Pine Ridge. I think it's Pine Ridge. It's either out. No, it's Pine Ridge. The Pine Ridge Aero Spinner. It's like 20, 25 bucks. You can get it on Amazon, eBay, or your local shop. We sell it for, for about 20 bucks at our local shop. Um, and I always recommend if you can go to your local shop and buy stuff, your local shop would be very happy. You mean uh, not I Amazon? Never, is that what? Yeah, not, <laughs> not Amazon. The only reason I go to Amazon and stuff is if we're not a dealer of it uh, and we can't get it into our shop. That's the only time I'll, I'll buy stuff off Amazon. Or if um, you need it now, like if right now, it, like right this very second, there needs to be an instant button on Amazon. Forget two day shipping. I need to like hit the button, hold my hand out and it lands in it. I just ordered um, mine. I just ordered mine, uh, the Pine Ridge or whatever it is that the arrow spinner. And I think it was like 18 bucks, Amazon one day shipping. I got it the next day. We ordered it on so a Sunday, got it on a Monday. You have so many first world problems. It's not even funny. Darn but... you, Jeff Bezos. <laughs> <laughs> Bezos. Anyway, but no, the aerospinner is great. What um, what's interesting with the aerospinner is that, and I, it's, and we've, I dealt with this a lot in the shop, or even people that come down here to my base and for me to work on their bows, is that people have no idea what a a non straight arrow looks like, or what a really straight arrow looks like. It's really interesting because, like, we know what like a two by four when it's not straight. Or a piece of PVC pipe when it's not straight. But when it comes to an arrow, for some reason, people just have a massive brain fart. And they're like, well, that 1,000, that 6,000, that looks exactly the same. You know? <laughs> so for the arrow spinner, until you really want to get serious about tuning the actual arrow, I wouldn't sweat it too much. Or in your case, if you're going to really, um, if you're going to go with a glue-on broadhead or you're going to go with a fixed blade broadhead that's really long, um, I would strong, or one that you can take apart and put back together, like I shoot the Magnus Stinger. That one, you got to make sure you put the blade back in straight. Um, you can test to make sure your broadheads come back straight. That, that's, a good, that's a good thing there. But I've almost gotten to a point where I 
I don't worry about the straightness of it unless I smash off a rock. You so know, I used to, I used to shoot the buzz cuts for a long, long, long time. I mean, long, like as long as I've been shooting archery, I've been shooting the buzz cuts with the bleeder blade, of course. But I just switched it up and I'm now shooting a day six broadhead, the Evo. And I like it. And so my buddy, and this is kind of segueing into this, if you can't tell already, we're going to get into this. But my buddy's like, oh man, you got a broadhead tune. You got a broadhead tune. And so I just recently, I've been, well, when I bought my new bow last year, I bought a dozen arrows, which now I only had like seven left. So I was like, this year, I'm going to buy a dozen and a half. That way I have two dozen arrows. So I go to the bow shop. I tell them, put the knocks in, fletch half of them. The other half, don't fletch them. And then don't put any of the inserts in them. Just give me the inserts. So I'm shooting the Victory um, Extortions. The ones heavy. I wanted to go heavy because my whole, the whole thing with me is I want one setup that if I go on an elk hunt, I don't have to change anything and it, it blow through an elk shoulder or blow through a whitetail shoulder. Don't care. That's my one setup and I'm done. So I got that going and my buddy's like, oh, you got a broadhead tune. You got a broadhead tune. So I took and I glued in one with my, I got like a half cert that I use or like a 75 grain half cert. I want like a total, I, I think I'm like 612, maybe 618 grain total arrow weight with my broadhead, like 14 or 13 and a half, I think 13 and a half front of center. I don't know if we'll talk about that later, but, <laughs> but anyway, so. I got the whole setup. I got the, so I got the extortion arrows. I got my half certs, 75 grain half certs, stick those in. I spin my arrow that is just regular glued. I glued, the inserts were glued in on the last set. I spin it and I don't even see anything. And I'm like, okay. So then I glue the other one and it's got a slight wobble. I heat it and I just turn it like a quarter turn, spin it again, it's fine. Then I take it and I put in a field point just to see what it's like i'm one of my ones and it was a brand new field point that i ordered and that had more wobble than the broadheads had is it just because i didn't weigh any of my now granted i did not weigh the new field points but i'm guessing it was that far off or something was off with that field point what do you think what's your thoughts on that the field points are definitely not field points are definitely matched for their are you shooting a saunders like a really needle type field point. I couldn't tell or is you it what it really was. Really blunted, like a real round nose field point. It's round nosed, I would say. More of a round nose. Okay. Well, anyhow, field points are matched much better for their weight than they are for their straightness. So most yeah. broadhead, <laughs> most broadhead manufacturers are doing three thousandths or less in terms of the total run out of their ferrules. Day six is doing one thousandths, right? They're yep. they're. I mean. I forget what is the price point on those off the top of my head. I completely forget. Pricey. <laughs> I was gonna say it's, yeah. it's, it's 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 right around two. I'd say right around two hundred bucks for a half dozen. I think. Okay, that's what I was gonna say about yeah. about a hundred bucks three. So, I mean that's and that's in your realm of iron wheels. You know that's not insane in today's market. You know no. you could go with bishops and tough heads and that sort of stuff. Cutthroats up there as well. You know we're talking single bevels too. Are you shooting the single bevel or is it the or is that the Evo? The it's the double? Evo. It's the Evo with the bleeder blade. Yep. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, 
most of them, so like Magnus is three thousands, but again, it's a forty dollar price point, thirty dollar right. price point. Yeah. Right. So but still um the reason why and I I, I talked to Mike at, at Magnus and I talked to Bill Vander Hayden from Ironwell about this, you know, why we're pushing for these tolerances, you know, because it you know, one thousandths, you know, and it's like, well, if you if you did a three thousandths or a six thousandths feral, would you would you be able to have uh because that's the problem with carbon arrows, right? You know, the carbon manufacturer will make let's say 10,000 arrows and 6,000 of them will be a 6,000 straightness. There's nothing they could do about that, right? So they, they just have an overproduction of these arrows and so they can sell the cheaper, lower tolerance cheaper because they just have more of them. They have more bulk of them and the, and the higher tolerance they just have less of. So there's a higher, you know, supply and demand. So I asked the, these broadhead guys, you know, about, you know, could you just make 3,000 straightness ferrules and sell them at a lower price point? Because 100 bucks for three broadheads is not cheap. And the answer was, why would we want to make a broadhead that's at or worse than the arrows that our people are shooting, right? If you're shooting a, a 1,000 straightness arrow, why would you want a 3,000 straightness broadhead? Right. Right. <laughs> or, you know, if you're shooting a 3,000 straightness arrow, why would you want a 4,000 broadhead? That makes no sense. Makes no sense whatsoever. And so... I would completely agree that the field point would totally have more wobble in it than broadhead because that broadhead, that, that sucker's 33 bucks a piece. It <laughs> darn well better be straighter than my arrow or pretty darn, I mean, just amazing. So, yeah. So my buddy, you know, he kept telling me, he's like, Hey, you know, you, you got a broadhead tune. You'd be surprised. You'd be surprised to wobble. And then no matter whether I had where I glued them in with the, like the super glue or I used the boning hot glue, it didn't matter. They had the same result and there was no wobble in them. So what, I mean, is it something even worth doing if you're using tight tolerance arrows and tight tolerance broadheads? That's my thing. I've got, I used to like match like inserts to light to, you know, I'd take met, weigh the shaft and weigh the insert, weigh the point, weigh the broadhead and try to match everything up. So it all weighed the same. And all. I don't even do that crap anymore. It's, I, I just shoot better stuff. I shoot high tolerance arrows, higher tolerance components, and higher tolerance broadheads. It just, and then I just, it's just plug and play. Now, Troy, the Ranch Ferry, is a very strong advocate of insert tune. And I do not deny that, it, that his insert tune works and that idea works. I do not deny it whatsoever. I 100% support it. I just don't do it. <laughs> so, just, I, I don't know <laughs> if it's just a laziness factor. I think it's a laziness factor. I just, I've I've cut and fletched and inserted hundreds of dozens of arrows in my life. And I think I'm just at a point where like I just want to glue this sucker and just put it in, just go shoot. Like I'm just done. So what about knock tuning then? Is oh, one hundred percent. Is that way more important than uh than an insert tune? Yeah. And you if you ask guys like Levi Morgan, if you if you think about it, the the front end of the arrow being straight is really important. But like Levi and a lot of the other guys, like um, for example, Jesse Broadwater, there was a big kerfuffle at Vegas this last year. Jesse Broadwater um was in the shoot downs and he was shooting Easton Fat Boys, old Easton Fat Boys, you know, thirty, you know, um uh max diameter arrows. But he had taken acetone and he had completely removed the label off the shafts so he was shooting these jet black shafts which of course you don't see that right you always see the cresting of the shaft and everybody was having a oh what's jesse doing did he paint the cresting is there a new arrow coming out from easton all this stuff and then they asked him afterwards he's like oh no all my arrows the crestings are backwards because i'll take the straight end of the arrow and if that's the front end i'll put it on the back end and i'll glue the insert where you would normally put the knock 
So his cresting would be like in the front eight inches of the arrow where the point is. <laughs> and he's like, as soon as that enters the target, it's just going to rub it off. So I just took acetone and just cleaned off the shaft. And I just got straight black shafts. And he's like, all my arrows are cut different lengths, this, that, and the other thing. So if you ask the, the target guys, they'll tell you the knock-in is way more important than the point-in because the knock-in is what's getting all of the force on the back end of the string. And if your arrow is crooked on the back end or your knock, Levi Morgan talks about this a lot, squaring off for the insert's really important, but squaring off for the knock is also equally important, making sure you're getting that flush contact on the knock because that's where the string's hitting. Now, I'm not Levi Morgan in terms of my skills, and I never <laughs> will be. Never will be. I'll never be Levi or Danny, and that's fine. But I, I strongly follow and believe a lot of things they say because what they say, just it just makes sense. It just mathematically and physics makes sense that the knock-in with all the pressure that's initially imparted on the arrow would make a lot of sense for how the arrow leaves the bow. And that knock-tune, I've seen the results. That knock-tune... Like, I never really worried about it with hunting arrows, but ever since I did with hunting arrows, my broad, my quote, broadhead tuning problems have all but evaporated. It's amazing. So let's kind of break that down for people that are listening that probably have no idea when we say knock tuning what it is. Let's just give a brief kind of description of how you would go about that and why you would go about that with a carbon arrow. In short terms, carbon arrows are tubes of carbon that are hot rolled or woven together and they have a seam somewhere, just like a seam of tape or like a roll of tape that has a seam. The tape runs out eventually, right? So where that tape rolls out, that's a weak part of the shaft. And the exact opposite, you know, 180 degrees on the opposite side of that tape roll, there's one extra wrap. And so there, technically, it's thicker, and therefore it's stiffer or whatever. Same thing's true with the carbon arrows. So the idea is if you can find that seam, you can make all of the arrows act exactly the same to each other. And so if you have every, all the arrows that act exactly the same to each other and then you tune the bow, or if you want to try different point weights or whatever, whatever method you want to do, you get all the arrows to act the same. And so whatever you do, it doesn't matter because all the arrows do exactly the same. Because we all had it. We've all had like, we, the, the, we, we reach in our quiver, there's like four arrows we're shooting in the backyard. And we know that this arrow with the funny looking fletching never flies right. You got a flyer. We, don't know. we, got a <laughs> we flyer. call them flyers. <laughs> we don't know why. We have no idea why they do that. We just know that arrow is just, we just don't hunt with that arrow. That arrow just sucks. You know, it just doesn't group, right? Where the other ones are right in there. Well, I would argue that predominantly the reason why is because there's a tolerance with that seam and that's one sitting on a part of the seam that it doesn't like, right? And you have no idea. When you stick a, a knock into an arrow, you, you can't see it with a naked eye. I wish you could see it. If you could see it with a naked eye, life would be a lot simpler. But the, the only way to test it physically is to, is to own a very expensive $300 arrow spine tester and find that stiff side and mark it and fletch it like that. And that's just not feasible. I mean, there are some guys that will try to float them in the bathtub and, and, you know, the heavy side, the stiff side sinks down. Oh, it's just, it's just a bunch of wahooey. So knock tuning, you stick an arrow, you shoot an arrow, uh, bare shaft or with fletching. And you just rotate the knock around inside the arrow and you shoot it again and see what happens. It'll probably fly a little bit different. If you shoot it through paper, the tear might be different. If you just shoot it at a target, it might stick into the target at a different angle. And you shoot it until it gets good. And then you pick up another one and do the same. And you want them all to tear or look exactly the same, all reacting the same. And wouldn't, then from there you can tune. Wouldn't you want to do that with the... Uh with no fletching on it, if possible, because that's going to change where your, your cock feather is and everything else. Right? right. I mean, that vein, the vein will be sticking sideways or 
towards the the riser or your bow or whatever, right? The uh, when it comes to the fletch shaft, this is something I've gotten asked a lot about recently. Uh, people messaging and stuff. The you know right now the big thing is the heavy arrow, right? And of course you're in the heavy arrow land as well. When it comes to the heavy arrow, that spine becomes much, much, much more critical because you're really trying to fine tune because you have a lot of weight in that arrow. Um, you know, you might be appropriately spined for it, but it's it's not what when a manufacturer makes an arrow, what they design, what's in their head of the physics of how that arrow works. So that Noctune's much more particular and bare shafting with no fletchings is very important. If you're shooting more of a, a quote normal setup, you know, 100 grain point, 125 grain point, standard insert. You know, a typical 400, 350, 300 spine with a normal dude, normal draw length, whatever. What the, quote, manufacturer would intend that arrow for. You can get away with that standard pre-fletched factory arrow because your need for that perfect sweet spot isn't nearly as finite. So, you know, you have the weak side and the stiff side, but then you have all this gray area in between the weak side and the stiff side. Well... If you're just shooting a, a more normal arrow, that gray area is perfect. You got a lot of margin for error. And there's a pretty good chance shooting an arrow with three fletchings that when you knock it onto the string and that one fletching has to stick up or whatever, you're going to be in that gray area. You got a pretty good shot. One of those three fletchings is going to be in a gray area for that normal setup. And you'll be just fine. You really will be. At least that, I mean, this is all anecdotal. But this is this is my experience of what I've seen so far when it comes to bear shaft tuning a super heavy arrow or the more what a manufacturer would expect. Nice. So my buddy and I were talking about it and uh, the whole knock tuning and he's like, yeah, you know, I knock tuned like a half dozen of my arrows just to see how they would go. And he goes, to be honest, I got them knock tuned and then I fletched them and he goes, I, maybe I'm just not that good of a shot to even notice the difference. <laughs> It depends. It really, it really depends. If you're, if you're shooting, and like I say, if you're shooting a normal setup, there's more of a, like, there, I have a video on my channel of me shooting my wife's bow, 25 inches, 35, 37 pounds. I shoot it through paper. The arrow is not tuned. It's not even close. And then I screw on an inch and a quarter Magnus black horn at the four blade model. That sucker's like an airplane wing on the front of that arrow. And it shoots exactly with the field point out to 30 yards. I mean, it's a very normal setup arrow. Now, if she was shooting super fast or super heavy, I don't think it would have done the same. But shooting what a manufacturer would expect for that arrow, I think your buddy's not wrong in the sense that like, he doesn't <laughs> notice the difference because I think the arrow is, is meant to handle that, that wide range of tolerance. Interesting. So, all right. I kind of got another question then for you about the whole... Um, knock tuning broadhead tuning process if if you're doing it you're, you're gonna say you strip your fletching off and would you start out with a field point or do you want to use your broadhead you want to use your field point right if you shoot a broadhead out of a bear shaft arrow it's going to fly backwards and sideways <laughs> okay never shoot a broadhead with a bear shaft because now you put the fletchings on the front and it's going to literally fly backwards i'm not kidding it's really scary when it happens <laughs> 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 nice. yeah just shoot just shoot it with the with the streamlined field point okay and then um so so you do that you get it tuned you fletch it um i mean how how big do you think front of center is compared to you know other things than on an arrow 
Because you hear a debate about that all the time, like it doesn't matter or it does matter. What what do you think? Is it more of like a competition concern than a hunting concern or what? Uh, well, it, it, the the competition guys, for the most part, unless they're shooting FIDA and they're doing 70 meters or more, they don't really sweat it all that much. Uh, now, granted, okay, let me rephrase that. I don't shoot at the pro level or the opens, you know, semi-pro levels. So I'm shooting in the bow hunter class and uh, a lot of the other amateur classes. And so it's not nearly sweated as much, the FOC thing. In the hunting world, I am a, I'm a bad advocate for FOC because I've never, as soon as I turned like 18 years old, getting FOC for me has been very difficult. I have to have a very heavy arrow to have a high now amount of FOC. For example, my arrow stock this year is four with 125 grain point is 10, 10 and a half uh, percent FOC and it's 485 grains. So for me to bump to get to like that 19% FOC, I have to put almost 300 in the front end for me to get there. And now we're talking, shoot, almost 700, right? For me to get that real high FOC number that like Dr. Ashby talks about, for example. Um, so for me, that's not something I've ever wanted to do. So for me, I have never worried about FOC. Now, if my FOC gets to the point where like it's like, mid single digit like seven eight percent then i start to like it's it's not a great particularly for hunting you know that's not a great number for targets you were just hitting paper i i couldn't care less but when it comes to the hunting i'd like to be in the high eight to nine definitely ten if i can if i can squeeze it now so why do those i mean why does that percentage matter what what is that pertaining to when they talk about the front of center what would what would that matter for an arrow are we talking just the amount of energy that the front end of that arrow would carry or what would, what would that be? Basically the amount of, right. You're exactly right. The amount of energy that the front of the arrow carries, right? It's the same analogy. Tie a string to a baseball and throw it. The baseball is going to lead the string. You know, any of us who threw the nerf balls that looked like they had feather or they looked like they had arrow veins on the back end of the nerf footballs. We all remember that thing. How we would be a whistler. You could throw that thing 800 yards. It felt like when you were 12 years old. So, that's the idea. Put all the weight in the front and it'll carry the fletchings instead of the fletchings trying to drag down the front end. The front end's going to carry it. And, and then it's often widely spoken that when it then impacts the animal, that the broadhead is pulling the arrow instead of the arrow pushing the broadhead. Now, I don't, I am not a physicist. That doesn't, to me, it doesn't make sense because it's this giant flexing tube. Like the arrow is flexing the entire weight of the target. There's never a point where the arrow is, is done flexing. And if you ever watch slow motion video of an arrow hit anything, it's always going to flex when it hits the thing, unless you're shooting an actual piece of rebar. Um, but it's, it's just the way it is. So I, I, I don't understand that when they say it gets pulled through the animal. Um, but that seems to be the general consensus. And, and definitely the, the physics of the actually getting pulled through the air definitely makes sense. Awesome. Thank you for clarifying that. In, yeah. <laughs> in terms that everybody can understand. So, um, just kind of, man, that's pretty cool. (laughs) FOC, like FOC is just a, is, is a crazy thing that no one cared about until recently. It was just like, cause like when, in the olden days of aluminum arrows, the arrows were like a 2219 aluminum arrow, which a lot of people hunted with was about 13 grains per inch, right? That arrow was so daggum heavy. If you wanted to get FOC, you had to put like 500 grains up front. You know, yeah. and that's just, that just doesn't exist, right? That you're talking like oh. an 850 grain arrow, you know, out of a, a bow that IBO 240, 
you know, I was IBO speed. So you were lucky to get 190, you know, back in those days. And it didn't matter. It still killed. That's didn't matter. Yeah. Blew through stuff, man. Blew through stuff. You know, the four inch veins or a five inch feather. It blew through. I, I, I shot uh, 2116s. 2116 aluminums with an 85 grain Magnus four blade stinger. And were I they shot the gold through. ones? The 2116s? Yeah. No, they were uh, they were the XX seventy five, the Camel Hunters. I want to say mine were like twenty twenty one eighteen or twenty one nineteen, I think. And they that were would make the, the yeah. gold ones. We used to cut them with the tubing cutter, ream them out, glue the insert in. Yeah, that was man. I almost good old miss, days when you I almost miss those days. Well, you could cut an them. arrow in your garage with a <laughs> pipe cutter. You so you mean you can't anymore. get a tool at Harbor Freight that does that? No, not for carbon. You sure? I mean, you can. You I've seen it. I've seen it happen. Chop saws? <laughs> you can do the old chop saw. I think there's some videos on the old YouTubers about that, but uh, I would strongly recommend a very high RPM saw for that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> a Dremel tool at a minimum. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so um, is there anything else kind of you would recommend for somebody like right now, hunting season, keep it in your pack, but before you do learn how to do it other than maybe like a D loop or something like that. The D loop is definitely one thing. And I, and I would say probably like, if you're thinking about getting into your bow for next year, I, one thing I would strongly recommend people just kind of do with their bow is learn just how their bow works, right? Just learn like what's going on with their bow. For example, like if your bow has split limbs, learn which number is on each limb like all limbs are numbered right um learn like how the cam on your on your like bow works so that way like let's say for example you do decide to go on an elk hunt and you do have a string failure but you brought it back up like understand like you know you might oh crap which way does it wrap around this post you know just have that or take pictures of it and keep them on your phone like that type of stuff is is super important um to have in that knowledge of your equipment because it's a lot less daunting to work on stuff when you're like oh it's just a it's just a stick and a string with a whole bunch of pulleys like it's really not that complicated when you really just kind of sit down and stare at it and just follow the strings like i would just sit here i'll sit here and just follow the string goes it goes up here and it goes around this thing and then it comes back (laughs) down and then you know it's just like or like understand like when you pull your bow which way does your cam spin right so like they're going to spin towards the riser, like, but that's true of top and bottom. So like, I've seen people they'll go. And again, this goes back to the whole DIY in the shop nonsense. We've seen guys put strings on bows backwards or cables really? on the wrong post. <laughs> yeah. And they bring them like, it won't draw. Like they'll try to pull it. I'm like, sir, you're, you're trying to pull this cam into this cam. It's impossible. And then I put it in the press, flip the cables around. And it's like, oh, well that makes sense. I'm like, yeah. You know, so just like understanding <laughs> for the future is a real big, is a real big key. And then just carry a set of Allen keys. And, you know, if you want to have a D loop material or something like that, another one that'll save your bacon, I forgot to mention earlier is, is BCY's, um, 3D in serving, which is basically like a crescent wrench of serving material for bowstring manufacturers. They'll use that for in-serving. It's basically used for everything that isn't the center serving of the string. The center serving of a string is very thick. Um, it's meant to be thick. It's very very abrasion resistant. Um, often it's a, a, a one called angel majesty. But the the in-serving, the 3D in-serving, is, is literally the vanilla serving of every bowstring manufacturer. And it gets used for tying on knocking points. It gets used to tie in peeps. 
it gets used to fix, you know, if you have a, you know, you're getting some wear on your cable and you want to, you want to serve the area where it's going, you just tie that stuff on. It literally is the duct tape, you know, of, of, of the, of the string cable industry. Um, and it's made by BCY. I mean, we buy the stuff by the quarter pound spool. Cause that's, I mean, we use it for everything in the shop. Do you, uh, do you use the serving tool when you do it then? Or you just kind of wrap it by hand? Yeah, I just wrap it by hand and it's, and if we, now if we need to do an actual fix in the shop, we will use a serving tool, but if you're in a pinch, you know, you're at home, you know, you got two weeks left in the season, you just got to tie this thing in or this thing's, you know, tying in rest cords, for example, you know, you shoot, shoot, shoot. And all of a sudden you notice that your rest is not getting out of the way, like a QAD or something like that. It's not meeting the timing marks and you see, oh no, I need to reserve that little part. Just cut the old serving off again. Use those little clippers. Don't use a knife. You'll cut your bowstring. Or your cable, use little clippers, and then BCY 3D in serving. It's like five bucks for a spool of a hundred yards. I mean, it's you know, um, and you just you can serve it right on, tie or just do some overhand knots. It doesn't have to be pretty, but that but that stuff will save your bacon, and it's and it's really inexpensive, and it's it's used by everybody. That's awesome, man. I appreciate it. It was uh, really informative and good having you on. And I'm thinking in the future, there's going to be some more questions and we might have to do like a second podcast for this whole thing. When when we really get into the meat and potatoes of taking apart my new bow and somehow ruining it. No, I'm what bow are you shooting? You didn't say that. Oh, I'm shooting the verdicts. Matthew's okay. verdicts. Yep. Okay. And that's my next, okay, real quick before we go. How is it possible that a bow company can come out with something cutting edge and breaking technology every year? How how does that even happen? They don't. They just make you think it. They make you think it. I mean, if you think, well, I mean, okay, so real quick, let's let's just just kind of run this down, right? So, for example, um, Elite up until this year had basically done the exact same thing since 2006. Binary cams, limb stops. Basically, what they're doing in 2016, they they put split limbs on their bows. Woohoo! Okay, nothing had really changed. Now they 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 keep their fan base, but in terms of what they offer, Matthews, uh, they offered the Halon back in they did the no cam in 2013. That was huge for them. They've been doing single cams up to that point. So from 1996 or whatever till 2013, they'd done the exact same thing. They just made them bigger or longer or yep. bigger or shorter. That's all they did. It was exactly higher, taller Matthews, riser, right? Yeah. Taller Brace riser. <laughs> And they were single cambos. That's all Matthews did for for years. And then they did that no cam, and then they did the halon. And since the halon, nothing has changed in terms of like the geometry of everything, right? Still the same yoke system. So that hasn't changed since 2013. Hoyt is still doing the exact same cam module system they've done since 2001. They have not changed in almost two decades. Uh, they've changed some fanciness. They put some rotating mods in, but in terms of how it operates, it's exactly the same. So. What really what changes predominantly now is like what Bowtech has done. Bowtech has been doing, I have to give hats off to Bowtech on this one. They've done a lot of very different things. And every three, every two years, they're doing something new. So they'll do a binary cambo one year. And then they'll do a double yoke cambo the next year. And then they'll do this flexing roller guard the next year. And then the year after that, now they're doing the deadlock cam technology where you shift it on the axle. They're changing something new almost every single year to a completely different bow system. Um, now, of course, they're going to have their years, and everybody has their years. So basically, all they're doing is, ah, oh, last year we made the 30-inch model, but this year it's 33. 
And it's like, <laughs> yeah. it's the same bow. It just weighs more or weighs less. That's all. Or maybe yeah. they offer a different color. Um, but it's got it's gotten to a point where basically every two to three years, you can expect them to actually do something new, something different from the major manufacturers. Um, but predominantly, it's very rare nowadays for every year for them to be something wildly and totally different. All right, cool. Man, I appreciate it. It's been good talking to you, Nate. And uh, I think this is a good point to wrap it up. And I really, really, truly appreciate the knowledge that you shared. It's awesome. And uh, it's something that hopefully not only educated me, but the listeners as well. So thank you for coming on. Hey, buddy. Thanks for having me. It's been a blast. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Once again, thank you so much for listening to the Publicly Challenged podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please subscribe on whatever platform it is you're listening to. Also, if you could leave a review, that would help us out. And you can check us out on Instagram or at publiclychallenged.com. And once again, thank you so much for listening to the show. most legendary shows in the outdoors is on waypoint tv don't miss primo's truth about hunting wednesday nights at 7 p.m eastern on waypoint tv the destination for outdoor entertainment when you go out there and the fish are where you think they are any one of these casts could be the bite it's the most exciting fishing that i know right here at hawks cave Oh, that's awesome. Experience the best saltwater fishing the world has to offer. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment.